If you're expecting me to say, open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I have received so many requests over the last week saying, would you please talk to us about the prophetic implications of the war that's going on over in Israel right now? And up to this point, I've been saying, no, 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 let's wait, let's wait, let's see what happens. But I think we're to the point now we can see the prophetic scenario unfolding. Let me tell you, I am not a prophet. I am simply going to show you the scriptures that I believe are in the process of being fulfilled. So is that okay if we do that first? Yeah. Then if there's time left, we get to Zechariah. What do you call this? I would call this the Israel-Hamas War with a subtitle of Amalek is about to get it. <laughs> yeah. Who resides in the Gaza Strip is the descendants of Amalek. Yeah, and you guys know that name, don't you? So if you join me in Bible study this morning, open up to the book of Amos, to chapter 1. There are two threads of prophecy that we have to weave together. One set of prophecies is about Gaza in particular. The other thread is about the Amalekites who live in Gaza. And it's because of the Amalekites that Gaza is about to get it, I believe. How many of you realize that almost the entire Israeli defense force is on the border of Gaza? If they haven't crossed the fence this morning, they are positioned and ready to go. And their expressed intention is to eliminate Hamas entirely. And that's important because it's in the prophecies. So let's start at Amos chapter 1 in verse 6. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord. So where did this prophecy come from? came from the Lord. It's not Amos sitting there going, boy, I hope they get it one day. It says, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Meaning Gaza has been a thorn in Israel's side since when? Since coming, out of since coming out of Egypt. That's right. Amalek attacked Israel from the rear. Didn't attack the army, attacked the weak, the elderly, the women, the children. Does that sound like today? Yeah, if you've not heard, Israel bombed a Hamas hospital. No, they did not. It was an Islamic Jihad rocket that failed to make it out of Gaza that landed in the parking lot. And instead of saying, whoops, we did it ourselves, they said, oh, Israel did it. And the world just, the news just picked up on it and said, look what Israel did. So Israel actually went on the news and disclosed top secret information, even conversations among the terrorists saying, whoops, <laughs> we blew up our hospital. Yeah. Okay, it says for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Gaza has been sending rockets into southern Israel for how many years now? Year after year. And God tolerated that because it helps bring Israel to the point of salvation. But like every nation that took Israel captive, what did they do? Did they stop at the borders where God told them? Or did they go too far? I tell you what, you start raping women and beheading little children, 
and God's pretty soon going to have enough. And I think that's where we are now. So for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because they took captive, the whole captivity, to deliver them up to Edom. What's Edom? Southern Jordan. Edom is another term for Esau. The nation of Jordan is 75% Palestinian. And they live in the southern portion, which is called in the Bible Edom. And they're the ones that are sharing the Gaza Strip and what they call the West Bank. So because they took captive, the whole captivity, to deliver them up to Edom, Edom refers to the enemies of Israel. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. What's fire in God's prophecies? Judgment. This says, God says they went too far. And I'm now going to unleash fire upon them. What did we just have last weekend? A ring of fire solar eclipse. Everybody knew when they saw that ring of fire solar eclipse that God's going to unleash judgment and it's coming and it's coming hard. Verse 8 says, I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. What's it mean, shall perish? They're going to die. They're going to be no more. And then in the same chapter, that was specifically about Gaza. Now turn to verse 11, where God is going to speak about Edom, the descendants of Amalek. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. Did you see any pity from the Hamas terrorists? I certainly did not. His, and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send fire upon Taman which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah. So the descendants of Esau, and who is Amalek, the grandson of Esau? God is going to hold them accountable for what they're doing. Have they stopped firing rockets into Israel? No. Have they stopped murdering Israeli women and children? No. Do they intend to stop? No, they do not. They're getting paid to do it, and it's your tax money that's paying them. May God forgive the United States of America. Amos is not the only book of the Bible that has prophecy that relates to what's going on now, in my opinion. Let's go to the book of Zephaniah. Not Zechariah, but Zephaniah. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zephaniah is the book that tells us we're all going to speak Hebrew in the Messianic Kingdom, so you may as well start learning it now. Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. You ready? Verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Undesirable is not the best translation. It's shameless. Shameless. 
no repentance for what they've done, no regret. Verse 2, before the decree is issued, that is repent before this judgment gets announced, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now down to verse 11. The Lord will be awesome for them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. How many of you realize that Allah is not God? Allah is a false god. And the Lord here says they're all going to get smitten. People shall worship him, each one from his place. Indeed, all the shores of the nations. You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation as dry as the wilderness. The herd shall lie down in her midst, every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, the bittern's a type of bird, shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars, meaning what? Totally destroyed. Their voice shall sing in the windows, desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it. And there is none besides me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Does that remind you of the Psalm 83 war? It should. Now let's go back in the same chapter, Zephaniah 2, to verses 4 and 5. I want you to see what leads into the Psalm 83 war. We read verses 1 to 3. 3 ends, It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger, for Gaza shall be forsaken. And Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday. And Ekron shall be uprooted. These are all cities within the old Philistine area we call today the Gaza Strip. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast. To the nation of the Kiritites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan. Land of the Philistines. I will destroy you so there shall be what? No inhabitant. What will happen to the descendants of Amalek? Bye-bye. Yeah, let's keep reading. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 8. You have to put all these prophecies together to get a clear picture. Acts, chapter 8. Verse 26. What is context in Bible study? Context is everything. You got to put yourself in a place of those who heard this taught back in the time of the apostles. Acts chapter 8 verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, what's that word saying? A quote. 
arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. If you were there when these words were spoken by the angel, what does the word desert mean to you? Habitation of demons. That demonic activity characterizes what? Gaza. What motivates people to rape and behead children? Is that just normal? I'm unhappy? That's demonic activity. So the angel told us right here that Gaza is a place of demons and demonic activity. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Starting in verse 1, we're going to go all the way to verse 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Let me give you a chance to find it. I have some chat out here. Let me look out while you're turning pages. The answer to your question, Rachel, is no. The Philistines are gone. They've long since been gone. But that's not the only place that he and I disagree on. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So whose words are they? The Lord's. In the third year, saying, it's a quote, these words come out of the Lord's own lips. Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Ahab was married to whom? Jezebel. What did Jezebel bring into Israel? Baal worship. Yeah. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. Why was there a severe famine in Samaria? Aren't those people good godly people? No, they're pagan idolaters, each and every one. And Ahab had called Obadiah. Obadiah. That's the name I want you to put in your notes. Obadiah, the name comes from two Hebrew words. Eved, which means servant, and Yah, which is the Lord. So his name means the servant of the Lord, which is important because he is an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau and has turned away from the pagan gods to worship the true and living God. He will defy Ahab. He will defy Jezebel. He will protect the true prophets of the Lord at his, the cost of his own peril. So verse 3, and Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. The scripture doesn't tell us, but I can be very certain that that was not the name he was born with, Obadiah. But rather, God gives him that name, like he changed Jacob to Israel, because he comes to know and serve the true and living God. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. 
What would have happened to Obadiah if Jezebel found out? She'd have killed him in a heartbeat. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. Have any of you driven across Texas lately? The rivers are bone dry. The cattle are gone. All those huge ranches with the thousands of cattle are all gone. There's no grass to feed them. It's just like it was in northern Israel, and it's for the same reason. Because they've turned away from God. Ahab sounds like he's afraid of the boy. <laughs> yeah. Verse 6, so they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him. And he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? He answered him, it is I. Go, tell your master, Elijah is here. <laughs> How did Obadiah feel about that? Ooh, ooh. So he said, how have I sinned that you're delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Why does he think Ahab will kill him? Who's caused the drought? Elijah has. Yes. In Hebrew, it just says, tell him Elijah. Uh-huh. And where it says in verse 8, it is I. Notice it is is in italics. All he said is ani. I. Yep. Go tell your master Elijah. That's all Obadiah needs to hear to say, whoa, I'm going to die. Just stand back and watch what happens. Yeah. So let's look and see what happens. <coughs> verse 9, so he said, how have I sinned that you're delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Excuse <coughs> me. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. When they said he's not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. And really, again, it's just Elijah. It shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master Elijah's here. He'll kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives. Lord of hosts, what kind of judgment? End times judgment. Hmm. Before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. So why did judgment fall upon the northern kingdom of Israel? Because they had forsaken the Lord. They broken his commandments. They have rebelled against God. What has Gaza done today? Do they think, gee, we're following God's rules, commandments, and judgments in what we're doing? No. They're rebelling against God and judgment's going to come. 
The reason I wanted you to see this in 1 Kings 18 is this Obadiah is the prophet Obadiah who wrote the book of Obadiah. So let's turn to the book of Obadiah. The Jewish sages say he was given this prophecy as a reward for his being so faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I believe that's true. If you thought Amos was hard to find, just look for Obadiah. There it was. It's how many chapters? One. But it's a very powerful chapter. Obadiah, chapter 1. Come on, come on. Right after Amos, the very next book. Obadiah. Are, Remember what does what's Edom that? Edom is Edom, Edom. enemies of Israel, and they're the ones that are seventy-five percent Palestinians. Did you say? Yes, Jordan today contains the descendants of Lot as well as the Amalekites. Thank you. Yep. We call them Palestinians, but there never was a state of Palestine. Rome renamed Israel Palestine to offend the Jews, to be an insult. So Obadiah, chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. What does the word vision mean? Who's it come from? comes from the Lord. The Lord gives him a vision of the end times. He is the descendant of Esau. He's from Edom. He's left there because he wants to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God has shown him in this vision what a good decision he made. So it says, thus says the Lord God. When you see it written that way, how is it really in the Hebrew? Thus says, my Lord, the Lord. So he's saying the Lord, the Tetragrammaton, the one who is the Lord from Genesis to Revelation is my Lord personally to me. Concerning Edom. Edom is the bottom part of Jordan today. It's where Petra is. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Who's the her? Edom. This fight against Edom is not going to be Israel alone. What other nation has just sent troops to help? And airplanes and ships. We have. America. Yep, America. I have two chats out here. Let's see if it's somebody going America. Says Edom is modernly question mark. Jordan is the southern part of Jordan. Yep. Oh, and then he says, got it. So I didn't need to answer. Okay. Back to verse 2. Behold. What's behold mean? Shut up and listen. Something very important is about to be said. I will make you small amongst the nations. Who? Edom. Does small mean the area shrinks or does it mean the people are reduced? The population is reduced. You shall be greatly despised. 
How many of you have seen the college campuses rioting pro-Hamas? Fortunately, most people don't feel that way. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride what? Pride against whom? Against God. You dwell in the clefts of the rock. Talking about Petra, the houses that are carved into the rock. Whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Meaning what? God can't humble me. I'll do what I want and God can't touch me. I'm too strong. I'm too powerful. Verse 4. Though you ascend as high as the eagle. And you set your nest among the stars. From there I will bring you down, says the Lord. So whose judgment are they going to fall under? God's judgment, the Lord's judgment. Verse 5 says, if thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, and then a parenthetical, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they, the robbers, the thieves, not have stolen till they had enough? If grave gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? So what's that parenthetical? Oh, how you will be cut off. Yeah, I'm not going to leave all this stuff the robbers, thieves, and gleaners would have taken. God says, you're going to be totally destroyed. Verse 6, oh, how Esau shall be searched out. Meaning there is no place for the descendants of Esau to hide. Where God cannot get them. It says how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. Anything they try to hide is gone. Verse 7. All the men in your confederacy. Shall force you to the border. Who is Hamas in confederacy with? Iran. Uh-huh. Hezbollah. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Are Hamas's allies going to turn on them? They are already. Yeah, if you've been listening to the news, there are Palestinians in Gaza having armed conflict against Hamas. Saying, you really blew it this time. Killing Israelis? No problem. You're kidnapping Americans and killing Americans? You know what that does? Here comes the U.S. military. So they're trying to fight against Hamas to say, wait, wait, you guys don't have to invade. We can take care of this little problem. But you know what? It says it's too late. It says, those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one's aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord? In what day? Day of the Lord. So this conflict if I'm understanding the prophecies correctly, is going to continue into the day of the Lord. This is just leading us into like putting hooks in the jaw in Ezekiel and leading the people out. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau, which means they're going to make some real stupid blunders that's going to cause their destruction. Then your mighty men, O Taman, which is a city in Edom, shall be dismayed to the ends that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Why? Verse 10. 
for violence. What's the Hebrew word for violence? Hamas. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So for Hamas against your brother Jacob, shame will cover you. And the word shame means all those plans you made are going to fail. You're not going to prevail in this conflict. So if anybody thinks Israel's going to fall tomorrow and Hamas is going to take over, ain't going to happen. You shall be cut off how long? Forever. What do we read in Amos chapter 1? What happens to Gaza? Toast. Verse 11, in the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother, in the day of his captivity. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. You've all seen the videos. What happens when Hamas comes in and kills Israeli women and children? What do the people do in Gaza? They tore out in the streets and they protest? No, they celebrate. They set off fireworks. They send gifts and candies to the children. They're so happy. Should they have rejoiced over the harm inflicted upon the children of Judah? The answer is absolutely not. In the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. They didn't just shoot rockets this time. They came through the gates. They entered the villages. They slaughtered people in their homes. They took captives. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. Nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For in the day of the Lord, for the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. When we see this attack upon Israel by Hamas, what does it tell us is near? The day of the Lord. It's a sign that we're right at the threshold. And the day of the Lord is upon which nations? All nations. Is World War III on the threshold? Have American troops been attacked this week in Iraq, in Syria, and in the waters off of Yemen? Has Russia told us that China is about to nuke you out of existence and you didn't see it coming? Well, we'll see. As you have done, it shall be done to you. What do we call that? The Haman principle. There we go. Boo. What's the Haman principle? Haman built a gallows 75 feet high to hang Mordecai on. And who hung on it instead? Haman did. As you've done, it shall be done to you. They invaded Israel from the south. They came into their borders. What's Israel about to do but go into Gaza in their borders? Your appraisal or reward shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow. What are they swallowing? 
wine and good things, poison and death and destruction. And they shall be as though they had never been. Is that total destruction? That's total destruction. But on Mount Zion, which is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. And there shall be holiness. Will the temple be rebuilt? Yes. Will the people resume the service to God? Yes. What did God promise? If the people will come up three times a year to keep the pilgrim festivals, what would no man want? No man would covet their land. If they had rebuilt the temple in 1967, would we be having these incursions today? No. But the temple will be rebuilt. It will be rebuilt shortly. Those red heifers are now of age and qualified. Have they slaughtered one yet? I haven't heard, but I don't know that they'd tell us. But that's the last thing standing in the way of rebuilding the temple. So it says a Mount Zion, that refers to the Temple Mount. There shall be deliverance, there shall be holiness. House of Jacob shall possess their possessions. House of Jacob shall be a fire. Fire is what? Judgment. Judgment. What's coming upon Hamas in the next little bitty time? Judgment. And the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. Anybody know what stubble is? The remnants of the straw that's cut in the field, how quickly does that burn? Burns in an instant. What happens when the house of Jacob and the house of Esau becomes intermixed, the fire and the stubble? The fire's left, the stubble's gone. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. How many? None. How many remain of Gaza? None. Do you see where these intertwine? For the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau. And the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim. And the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. In other words, the tribes are coming home. They're going to retake the lands that God promised to Abraham. How long ago? All the way back in Genesis. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. And Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So it looks like that which has started is going to just continue to rise in flame. As we go into the day of the Lord shortly. Let's go back to Genesis 36 and see who Esau or Edom is. Genesis chapter 36. Genesis 36. Why do I relate the Amalekites to Esau? Yep, they're the descendants. Let's go to Genesis 36, starting in verse 15. Genesis 36. This is the genealogy of Esau. Who is Esau the brother of? Jacob. Jacob. Jacob, that's right. Their family. Verse 15. These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. 
the sons of Aliphaz, the firstborn, a son of Esau, were chief Taman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kanaz, chief Korah, chief Gatam, and chief Amalek. So Amalek is the descendant of Esau's firstborn. So Amalek has, from the beginning, tried to take from Israel that which Esau gave to Jacob. Did Jacob steal it from Esau? Or did Esau sell it to him for a bowl of porridge because he despised it? The latter. Well, maybe it wasn't called porridge. It was lentil stew. Lentil. Lentil. Lentil stew. Is that yeah. <laughs> porridge? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what porridge is. But I know it's stuff you eat that you don't like very much. Okay. These were the cheeks of Eliphaz, the land of Edom. They were the sons of Adad. That's their mother. Let's go to Exodus chapter 17 and see the relationship between Amalek and Israel from the time of the Exodus. We're going to Exodus chapter 17. Israel went down into Egypt with 70 people. But they come out a great multitude with a mixed multitude grafted in, which makes them even more numerous. Exodus chapter 17, start in verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. So when Moses holds up his hand to God... God is with Israel. Israel prevails. When he let down his hand, takes his hand away from God, Amalek prevailed. I want everybody to hold their hand up for seven or eight hours. Yeah, not going to happen. You know that. Same, same with, with Moses. How old is Moses? He's 80 years old or better. Yeah. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Fonzie didn't come up with the phrase, sit on it. It's all the way back in the Bible. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book. What book? This book. And recount it in the hearing of Joshua. What does it mean to recount it? To retell it. Tell it again. Make sure Joshua knows about it. That I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Does that sound like I'll think about it? I might. Amalek is toast. But not yet. The fight between God and Amalek has continued down through the ages. 
and now is coming to a boil. And as God said in the scriptures we read earlier, for three transgressions or for four, he will not turn away judgment this time. And Moses built an altar and called it saying, the Lord is my banner, Adonai Nisi. The Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Go to Numbers 24 and we're going to find that that's exactly what has happened. Numbers 24. Numbers 24. Comes right after Numbers 23. At least in my Bible. Numbers 24, verse 20. Numbers 24, verse 20. I still hear pages turning. Let me give you a chance to find it. If ever I go too fast, just say, whoa, slow down a little. I don't know if you can tell, but I get excited about Bible prophecy. Numbers 24, verse 20. Then he looked on Amalek, and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until what? Until he perishes. Until he perishes. In the same chapter, verse 23. Then he took up his oracle and said, so these are prophecies. Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coasts of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Ashur and afflict Eber, and so shall Amalek until he perishes. That says Amalek is going to afflict Israel until God wipes them out. So what's the important point there? That they're going to afflict Israel or that God's going to wipe them out? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Start in verse 17. I'm surprised that the scripture hasn't given us this detail until now. But here it is in verse 25. Think of the exodus from Egypt. The people have been slaves. They have been starved. They have been beaten. They have been worked almost to death. Verse 17 says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked what? Your rear ranks. Who's in the rear? The sick, the elderly, those that are too young to travel quickly. All the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Meaning if he did fear God, would, would he have done this? Answers no. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance 
that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So when Israel came in the land and settled, what did God tell King Saul to do? Go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. In your notes, just make a parenthetical. Sin has consequences. 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1. First Samuel chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, who's Saul? He's the first king of Israel. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. Almost there, I can tell. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Okay. Verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. What does that mean? Listen and do what I tell you, boy. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of judgment? Oh my, it's an end times judgment, huh? I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. By using the phrase the Lord of hosts, God means I will never forget. When it comes for the time of the end, this is going to get fulfilled. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. We just read about that where? In Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy. Utterly destroy means what? Completely and totally. All that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing, child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, that means leave nothing alive, period. God said he was going to wipe them out completely. God gives that command to King Saul, go wipe them out completely. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, the Kenites are other descendants of Esau, but they're not descendants of Amalek. They're from Amalek's brother. Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. Had God told them to destroy the Kenites? No. So he's telling the Kenites to leave. What's Israel doing this past week or two? They've been telling the people in Gaza to flee the north, flee to the south. If you're innocent and don't want to be caught in the destruction, get south. The United Nations says that's a war crime to tell people to flee to save their lives. Uh, for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. 
But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Is that what God told them to do? No. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, whose word? The Lord. The word saying is, it's a quote. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel. And indeed, he set up a monument for himself and has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. What does that monument represent? Pride and arrogance. Yeah, it's Saul's total victory over the Amalekites. Did he get total victory over the Amalekites? He did not. So he's boasting to God that he did, when the truth is, he did not. Does that remind you of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, who said, I sold this property, and here's all the money, but they were lying. What happened to them? They fell down dead. Verse 13, Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. What? He went to a prophet to brag that he'd done what he didn't do. Does he not know what a prophet of God is? But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? In other words, you said you destroyed them all. Then what am I hearing? And Saul said, They, not I, not we, but they, the people, have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Verse 15 is more important than most people give it credit for. They're saying, yes, we disobeyed God, but we disobeyed so that we could bring sacrifices to him. Which is more important to God, obedience or sacrifice? Obedience. 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 He, says, the God, he says, the Lord's your God, not the Lord my God. Right. Verse 16, And Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, or modern English, Shut up. Shut up. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed, which means exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? What book do we read every Purim? The book of Esther. The here in the book of Esther is Mordecai, right? Mordecai is the descendant of King Saul. 
And the one who wants to kill the Jews, each and every one, is Haman. Boo. And he's a descendant of King Agog. If Saul had done what God commanded, the book of Esther would not have taken place. There would not have been the threat against each and every Jewish person throughout the world. What if Haman had succeeded? Would there have been a Messiah born to the Virgin Mary 2,000 years ago? No, all the Jewish people would have been exterminated. So because Saul disobeyed the commandment of the Lord, Satan thought he had a chance to beat God. To stop Messiah. To defeat the plan of salvation. That's why I said, put in your notes, sin has consequences. And that's all that's written. No, it's not. Let's go to Psalm 83. I've listened to Amir Sarfati. I've listened to Monty Judah saying that we're on the threshold of the Battle of Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38. In fact, Monty last night was thinking, it's just days away. But that's not where we are. Battle of Gog and Magog doesn't come until about three years in the tribulation period, and we're not there yet. Monty thinks it is because he doesn't believe in a rapture. He doesn't believe in a seven-year tribulation. He thinks the tribulation is only three and a half years. So the Battle of Gog and Magog is about to take place. But if you saw the interview on YouTube by what's the bearded guys, the bearded Bible guys, they interviewed Avi Lipkin because, well, they were stuck in Israel and couldn't get back to the state, so they had to have something to do. And they asked Avi, is this the start of the Battle of Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39? Avi said, no. But it may be the start of the Psalm 83 war. And that's where I want us to look. Psalm 83. Start in verse 1. A song, a psalm of a soft. What do you know about a soft? What does the Bible call him? A seer. What's another name for a seer? A prophet. So, so many people look at the book of Psalms and say, yeah, that's a songbook. Who cares what's in it? The Psalms are absolutely full of prophecy. And this is one. It says, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. And do not be still, O God. What's another way to say that? It's time for you to act, O Lord, for they've considered your law as void. Psalm 119, verse... 126. So it means, God, it's time for you to help us destroy our enemies. Verse 2, for behold, what's coming, something really important. Your enemies make a tumult. What's a tumult? An uprising, as in an attack on your people. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. They don't love the Lord? No, they do not. Hamas hates Israel because God loves Israel. So their ultimate hatred is for God. And they are Muslims, yeah. 
They have taken crafty counsel against your people. What does crafty counsel mean? They think they're wise, but it's an underhanded surprise attack. Did Israel have any warning this was coming? No, it was a complete and utter surprise. It was on a high holy day and 50 years in a day after the Yom Kippur War when they attacked Israel on Yom Kippur. What do you know about holy days like Yom Kippur and Shemini Atzeret or Sochat Torah? Where are all Israeli military folks at home with their families celebrating the high holidays? So manning in the military outposts is at a bare minimum. They're not expecting any trouble. 50 years in a day. 50 years in a day after the start of the Yom Kippur War which was 1973. At 50 years, 2023. Why didn't they attack on the anniversary? Because that wasn't a high holy day. And where would the Israeli troops have been? Stopping them in the dirt. Stopping them in the dirt. Yep. Verse 4. They have said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. What is Hamas's charter? What is their motivation? What do they say they're out there to do? To cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. That is, there's a confederacy of nations out there. It's not just Hamas. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom. Edom is Esau the brother of Jacob. Today, we call them Palestinians, and they spread from southern Jordan, from Edom, over to the Gaza Strip and what we call the West Bank, or I prefer to call Judean Samaria, which is what the Bible calls it. And the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites are the descendants of Ishmael, the son of Abraham and Hagar, and they're the Folks down in Saudi Arabia. Moab. Moab was one of the sons of Lot by his daughter. They're today in Jordan. And the Hagrites. The Hagrites are the descendants of Hagar. And they are Ishmaelites dwelling in Gilead. Today they spread down into Egypt. A lot of these peoples are nomadic, so they kind of spread across a region as opposed to being a defined border. Verse 7, Gabal. Gabal is Lebanon. Where's Hezbollah firing rockets from? Lebanon. And the inhabitants of Tyre. Tyre is also Lebanon. Verse 8, Assyria is also joined with them. Not only have rockets been fired from Lebanon, but also from where? Syria. Join with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Selah. Did you miss Ammon and Amalek? What's that? Did you miss Ammon and Amalek at the Oh, I probably did. Ammon in verse 7. Ammon are the son of Abraham's nephew Lot by Lot's youngest daughter. They're also Palestinians spread across Jordan and over into Gaza. 
And Amalek, gee, I mean, that's why we came here, right? Here's Amalek, who God said he'd have war with Amalek until they were utterly and totally destroyed, and they haven't been yet. Amalek, the grandson of Esau, these are the Arabs south of Israel. So they're the primary residents of the Gaza Strip. Thank you. Boy, I don't want to miss them. Verse 9 says, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook of Kishon. What do you know about all those folks? Dead as a doornail, right. Yeah, yeah, one of them had the spike driven right through his head. Yep, she nailed him good. Verse 10, who perished at Endor. Uh-oh. Where do you know the name Endor? Saul went to conjure up the soul, the dead soul of Samuel. He went to the witch at Endor. And then, of course, if you watched the Bewitch series in the 60s, Sam's mother was called Endora. The whole point of the show was to say that witches are not evil. They're nice people. They're godly people. Yeah, Samantha even puts up Christmas trees and paints Easter eggs. What a nice witch she was, huh? Who perished in Endor became his refuse in the earth. Hmm. So Psalm 83 has not started yet. But the conflict that's going on now may well lead to it. Yes, Warren. Uh, There's a reference in my KJV study Bible on that verse 13. Oh, my God, make them like a whirling dust. Yeah. Because he's speaking of Assyria to Isaiah 17.1. Mine is reference to Isaiah 17.13. Let's go look at Isaiah 17.1 and see what it says. We all know what Isaiah 17 is about, right? The de- total destruction of Damascus. I'm watching for that. Who is developing nuclear weapons right now? Iran. Where will they move them to? Damascus. What happens when Israel bombs Damascus? That nuclear material is going to spread all over, right? So let's read Isaiah 17. We'll start in verse 1 and go all the way down there. Because this is something that will cause the Psalm 83 war to just escalate and blow up. No pun intended. Isaiah 17. We don't know exactly when this destruction of Damascus will take place says in verse 1, the burden, the burden is a Messiah. It's a prophecy that's so heavy on the heart of the prophet, he can hardly tell it. The burden against Damascus. Where's Damascus? The capital of Syria. When we go to Israel next, and we go up on the Golan. You know, the Golan are the mountains that separate Israel and Syria. You can see from Harbin Tal into the heart of Damascus from where you're standing. It's that close. Behold, Damascus shall cease from being a city. Historians 
who may not always lie to us, tell us that Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city on earth. There were older cities, but they're no longer inhabited. Damascus, they say, is the oldest one that's been continually inhabited from its founding. What does verse 1 tell us? It's going to cease from being a city. And it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. The cities of Aurora, if I remember correctly, are in Israel. And they're going to be forsaken because of the attacks coming from Syria. The people have to flee. They will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. The fortress will also cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts, meaning Israel will triumph over them. In that day, what day? Day of the Lord. We haven't reached the day of the Lord yet. That's why I say we're building toward this, in my opinion. I'm not a prophet. That's the way it looks to me. In that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. Israel's going to get attacked from all kinds of places. Shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain, he reaps the heads with his arms. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough. Four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Meaning Israel will not totally fall. There will always be a remnant in Israel. No matter what the enemy does to it in these coming days and years, Israel will not completely fall. Verse 7, in that day, again, the day of the Lord, a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. In that day, his strong cities will be as a foremost bow and an uppermost branch. How many times did we just read in that day? Is this the third time in this chapter? People say, we don't know when Damascus will be destroyed. When does the Bible say? In that day. Which they left because of the children of Israel. And there shall be desolation. It says will be, shall be, same thing. There is no word will or shall in Hebrew. So you can pick one or the other. Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation. And have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. Therefore you shall plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In that day, in the day, same thing. You will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. How quickly is Damascus destroyed? Let's read on, verse 12. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations. They make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee away, flee far away, and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Here we go. Then behold at evening trouble. And before the morning he is no more. 
At evening time, trouble in the morning, no more. Destroyed overnight. Completely, totally, and uninhabitable. It says, this is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. What would destroy a city so completely and totally that it's destroyed overnight and uninhabitable? A nuclear destruction. Israel doesn't have to drop a nuke. All they have to do is drop a bomb where the Iranians have hidden their nuclear weapons and Damascus won't be inhabitable again. Let's see, I got a question out here. Let's see. Number one. Julie says, I have heard that Saddam Hussein did have weapons of mass destruction. Of course, he took them to uh, Libya and took them and hid them under Damascus before the American troops got there. No, I think they went to Libya. But I wasn't there. So, there's another counterpart to Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17 happens in that day, which is the day of the Lord. But how would it be connected to what's going on now into the Psalm 83 war? Yep, Jeremiah 49. We'll go there in a minute. What has Iran said repeatedly over the last few days? If Israel goes into Gaza, we will attack. We will attack with nuclear weapons and they will exist no more. Well, Iran's not going to drop nukes from Iran. They're going to pre-position them in Damascus. Hmm. And then Jeremiah 49, as somebody astutely pointed out. Thank you, Karen. Jeremiah 49 appears to many people to be an irrelevant prophecy to this current discussion, but that's because they don't realize where Alam is. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 34. Let's see, I've got microphones that are not muted, so let me mute them. And if somebody's got a comment, feel free to unmute, of course. Today, the nation of Iran is called Iran. It hasn't been called that for very long. When was it called the nation of Iran? 1935. Before that, it was called Persia, and the westernmost portion was a separate nation called Elam. But they have been mixed together into one nation called Iran. The western portion at the south of Iran is where the Bashir nuclear reactor is, where Iran is building nuclear weapons. How many times has Israel said, we will not allow Iran to have nuclear weapons? They have, Israel has been trying to get the United States to stop their nuclear program and instead we keep funding it. Do you notice that? We keep, I don't know why either. Balance of power. Balance of power. I think it's because they have oil. But again, I'm not in power. We used to have, you realize our supplies have been drained down to just a few days worth. Biden's been sending them to foreign countries. Our enemy countries. But I don't want to get into politics. So let's get to Jeremiah 49, verse 34. If that Bashir nuclear reactor continues, 
Iran will have nuclear weapons and Israel would be in deep trouble. So they keep saying we have to stop the nuclear program. Now let's read Jeremiah 49, 34. Jeremiah 49, verse 34. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam. That's not the whole nation of Iran. That's where the Bashir nuclear reactor is. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? End times prophecy. Behold, I will break the bow of Elam. The bow means the military power. Not just any military power, it says the foremost of their might. What is the foremost of the weapons of mass destruction? They're the nuclear weapons being developed where? At the Bashir nuclear facility in what used to be called Elam. Today it's just southwest Iraq, Iran. Against Elam, I will bring the four winds. Wind referring to what in prophecy usually? War. From the four quarters of heaven and scatter them toward all those winds. That is, the people in the area of that nuclear reactor are going to have to leave that whole area. Won't be inhabitable. There will be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. In other words, the United Nonsense, I mean the United Nations, will tell the nations of the world to accept the people that are fleeing from this atrocity that's taken place. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies. What's it mean to be dismayed? Embarrassed. Embarrassed. Here's Iran. They've been bragging that we're going to develop nukes. We're going to destroy Israel. We're going to wipe them off the face of the map. They won't exist anymore. What happens to that nuclear capability? It's going away. God says, I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger, says the Lord, and I'll send the sword after them until I have what? Consume them. I will set my throne in Elam, which means God's going to rule over it from that point forward. And I will destroy from there the king and the princes, says the Lord, but it shall come to pass in the latter days. I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. Captives of Alam. Is Iran going to take Israelis captive? Hamas and Hezbollah, they're just part of Iran. Iran backs them. Iran trains them. Iran funds them. Iran arms them. So the Hamas terrorists are acting on behalf of Iran. But God says, I'm going to bring the captives back that they have taken. Why is the United States ready to jump in the battle against Hamas? Did they just take Israelis captive? Or did they take Americans captive too? They really messed up here. So, as I started, let me end. I am not a prophet. But as I read these prophecies, I see this is where the war is going. Hamas, they attacked Israel brutally, raping, killing, murdering, taking captives, women, children. They didn't care. They have so offended God 
that I believe God is about to carry out all those prophecies that say, Gaza, you're going to be totally destroyed. Now, Israel has done some aerial bombing, but the troops, when they go in, what are they going to do? They're going to level the place. Benjamin Netanyahu has made no, no veiled threats. He has said, Hamas will never exist again. That's what God said. It's almost like he's reading the Bible. You know what? He's a great student of Bible prophecy. And he knows that this is what God has said. And he says, okay, God, I'm on your side. Let's see, what time is it? We still have time to do a little bit of Zechariah. So turn to Zechariah chapter 7. Now that we've finished our introduction... But honestly, people kept saying, would you please tell us? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so, yeah, that's what I think's going on. Sounds pretty clear to me. So we're in, I said, Zechariah chapter 7. Starting in verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 23 gives us the last four messages, the last four visions and prophecies that God gave to Zechariah. Verse 8 begins the second message. So verses 1 through 7 were the first message. Verses 8 to 14 are the second message. And the message is this, if you want a title. Disobedience leads to severe judgment. Or in other words, sin has consequences. Daniel just finished a three-part teaching that I hope everybody listened to. What are the righteous requirements of the law? And if we choose to turn our backs to the law, what does Proverbs 28.9 say? God will not hear your prayer. Your prayer will be an abomination to God. Meaning if you will not hear God, God will not hear your pleas for, please bless me, bless me. And that's the message we're going to find here in Zechariah. Chapter 7, right? Verse 8. Yep. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, the word of the Lord, see how the way Lord is spelled, there's the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav that are from Exodus chapter 3. He's the God who said, I will be whom I will be. When you see I am that I am, that is an incorrect translation. That would be ani, asher ani. This is a yeah, asher a yeah. I will be whom I will be. How does God treat his servants, his children? With blessing, kindness, love, mercy. How does he treat his enemies, his adversaries? Indignation and wrath. So here in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying. What's that word saying? It's a quote. What did Messiah say in Matthew 4.4? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. How do you know when a word proceeded from the mouth of the Lord, 
right here. The word Lord came to Zechariah saying. The word saying means what follows is a quote. They are God breathed to use the words of 2 Timothy 3.16. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? In times. So yes, it applied back in the days of Zechariah, but it will apply also in these last days. <laughs> Execute true justice. Why do you stick in the word true? Execute true justice. What is true justice? Not swayed by money or by the position and power of the people. So what does the scripture say? If we want to be forgiven, we must forgive. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's true justice. When you're judging the situations by the word of God. Show mercy and compassion. Everyone to his brother. If you wanted to summarize verse 9, it would be repent. Repent. The Lord of hosts means judgment is coming. If you do not want God's judgment to fall upon you, you repent. Right? Let's go to Hosea chapter 12. The word Hosea, the name means salvation. Hosea is right before Joel. Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12. Verses 2 through 6. Again, Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 through 6. The Lord also brings a charge against Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel. And will punish Jacob according to his ways. Uh-oh. When God refers to Israel as Jacob, it means they're rebellious and unrepentant. When they're walking as his children, he calls them Israel. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. What does that mean? He will get paid back according to what he has done. God bless you. So if Israel is being righteous and kind and merciful, what does God give them? Mercy and kindness and loving kindness. But what if they're being wicked? They should expect God's judgment. Verse 3, he took his brother by the heel in the womb. That's what Jacob means, supplanter or fink. And in his strength, he struggled with God. So why did God change his name from Jacob to Israel? Because he repented. He met God. He came face to face with God. He learned to follow after God. Verse 4 says, yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel. What does Bethel mean? The house of God. And there he spoke to us. That is the Lord, the God of hosts. It's actually, wow. The Lord is his memorable name. So you, by the help of your God, return. What's return mean? Repent. So if Jacob wants to become Israel, he must repent. Observe mercy and justice. 
Once you repent and you walk uprightly, how do you treat others? With mercy and justice. And wait on your God continually. Go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Verse 23. True or false, God commanded Israel to give 10% of their money. It was 10% of the produce of the land. That's right. So in verse 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Those are the smallest of the seeds, the smallest of the produce of the land. There's no problem with that, but, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, of the Torah. Justice and mercy and faith. These, that is, giving tithe of the produce, you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. What did the scribes and Pharisees do here that so offends the Lord? They're picking and choosing. They will follow the commandments they want to and ignore those they don't like. Does God give us the option to pick and choose which commandments we like and don't like? No. But what are the weightier matters of the law? Justice and mercy and faith. If they have justice and mercy and faith, the rest is going to follow along. Because if you have faith, you love the Lord. If you love the Lord, you'll be keeping his commandments. Give me a verse. John 14, 15. Give me another. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Give me another. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. It's all over the Bible. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 7. So in verse 9, when it says, Execute true justice, show mercy and compassion. Do you see how that relates directly to Matthew chapter 23, verse 23? Those are the weightier matters of the law. So God isn't picking some obscure little commandment like don't take a bird and its eggs from the nest on the same day. He's going to the big things, the obvious things, and the rest, the little things will follow. Verse 10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless. What's another word for fatherless? The orphans. Or the alien, that's the Gentile within their borders that wants to worship God. Or the poor. Aren't all the poor people poor because God hates them? No. That's a wrong attitude. It says that none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Yes, Susie. Apparently not. Okay. Sometimes microphones just pop on. Happens to me too. Let's go to the New Testament, to the book of James. James was the half-brother of our Messiah. Before the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, 
James thought his brother was a little strange. If you remember, he tried to take him out of synagogues where he was teaching, saying, oh, just ignore this guy. He's a little touched in the head. But after he met the risen Lord and said, hey, brother, he had a change of heart. And he became the head of the apostles in the church in Jerusalem. James chapter 1. As soon as I find it. There we go. Verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And, not or, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Keep oneself unspotted from the world means to walk uprightly and righteously before God. Don't walk in sin. But beyond that, you need to have compassion and mercy on those who cannot help themselves. In the days of the Bible, widows and orphans, could they go down to Walmart and get a job as a greeter? So what happened if they have no one to provide for them? They starve to death unless others are kind enough to share. Can you truly say I love my neighbor as you let him starve to death? The answer is no. Let's go back to Malachi. <clears throat> Malachi. <clears throat> if you don't know where Malachi is, go to Matthew 1 and turn back a page. Unless, of course, you have all those maps and stuff in the middle of your Bible. Then just rip those out. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 5. We often joke in here about how God doesn't make veiled threats. There's never a veil. It's just a threat. And here in Malachi 3, 5, God gets right down to it. It says, And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a, sweet, a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Did God just say if you exploit wage earners and widows and orphans that you're going to be the recipient of his wrath? He most certainly did. Go to Exodus chapter 22. God talks about widows and orphans a lot. And also the stranger. The Gentile who wants to be grafted into Israel to worship the God of Israel. What if Israel turns them away and says, no, go back to your pagan gods. Then come judgment day, look out. Exodus 22 verses 22 to 24. What are those first three words? You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot. And I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. 
I told you, there's no veil over that thread, is there? That's pretty strong. Did God really mean it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Deuteronomy chapter 10. I know Daniel doesn't like this chapter, but I'm kind of fond of it. Yeah, he loves this chapter. Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. I have a comment out there. Let me see what it is and go to meeting land. What does it mean to exploit wage earners? When you hired a day laborer in Israel, God said you give them their wages at the end of the day, that very day. Don't hold it overnight. Because they're day laborers because they have no other way to feed their family. We saw that a lot in California. There were places that migrant workers would gather and trucks would come by and say, I need 10 people. They'd hop on. They're only hired for the day. And they, God requires you to pay them at the end of the day so they can go home and feed their families. Otherwise, they go home and say, well, he didn't give me any money. We have nothing to eat. God would not like that a bit. So Deuteronomy 10, is that where we're going? All righty. What Daniel loves Deuteronomy 10 for begins in verse 12. So let's just read it before we go to verse 18. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? And the word require is not right. The Hebrew word is sha'ul. Sha'ul means request. God requests it. But what's a request from God? It's a requirement. Yeah. But to fear the Lord your God. If you fear the Lord your God, you will be obedient to the Lord your God, right? Mm -hmm. And it goes on to say, to walk in all his ways. In Jewish talk, what is halakha? Halakha comes from halak, it means the way we walk. And the way we walk is to walk in all his ways. That's what it means. Halakha is to walk in the ways of God. And to love him. John 14, 15, if you love me, comma, keep my commandments. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart. There's two different words used in the Old Testament in Hebrew for serve. The main one is avad. Avad means to work. It's where we get the word servant or slave. It's one who obeys the master. So to serve the Lord your God is to obey the Lord your God. Do what he asks of you. With all your heart and with all your soul. With all your heart means because you love him. We don't obey God so that we can earn salvation. That's not possible. If you're trying to do that, stop. You can't do it. We keep the commandments of God because we love him. We keep the commandments of God because we're saved. Not in order to be saved. And that's what it means with all your heart. What does God say in the new covenant? Where's the law written? Upon your heart and upon your mind. Done out of love. Done out of a desire to serve the true and living God. And with all your soul means, even if it costs you your very life. So if terrorists break through the doors of this building today and say, renounce this Yeshua fella or die, what's our answer? Threaten us with heaven? Okay. Let's go. That's what it means with all your souls, with your very life. 
and to keep. The word keep there is what? To guard, to protect, to treat as valuable, something important to you. The commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. For your good means it is not a burden to keep God's commandments. It's a blessing. People say, do you have to? And I say, it's not a question, do I have to? I get to. I get to be an obedient child to my loving father. What's in between a commandment and a statute? Commandment is a commandment that we understand why. Thou shalt not murder. Anybody get up this morning and say, I wonder why murdering is bad? No. A statute is something like the slaughter of the red heifer. Anybody ever wonder why it has to be a red heifer? And it has to be burnt with cedar and with hyssop and a blood-colored cloth? Then you take the ashes and you put it in water? Then you take the water and you sprinkle people and they become clean? Does that make sense to anybody? No. The statutes are there, according to the ancients, because people would obey commandments because they understand them. But the only reason they obey commandments they don't understand is because God said so. So there's the litmus test. Will you obey God simply because he asks you to? In the same book, Deuteronomy, go to chapter 14. Wait a minute. I didn't do the verse in 10. The verse in 10 is verse 18. Sorry. Deuteronomy 10, 18. Boy, you can't distract me, can you? He administers justice. That he is God. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow. And loves the stranger. Giving him food and clothing. The stranger again is the Gentile that wants to worship God. That's many of you. Many of us in this room. Therefore love the stranger. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. When verse 18. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow. How does he do that? He commands us. And when we're obedient to him, then the fatherless and the widows, they're taken care of. Does God ever use people to carry out his will? All through the scriptures. Now go to verse 29 of chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14, verse 29. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 29. Referring to the tithe of the third year. Verse 29 says, And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the stranger, there's the Gentile who wants to worship God, and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So the tithe of the third year went to feed the Levites that were in their cities. And the strangers that dwelt in their cities. And the fatherless and the widows. And God says if you do that. Then I will bless the crops. And you're going to have plenty. Deuteronomy 16, verse 11. Now 
When it comes to the pilgrim festivals, the times that Israel is required to go up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple before the Lord. It says in verses 11 to 14, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger, there's that non-Jew, and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where, you, where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress and you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates. God says when you go up to the festivals, you don't go empty-handed. You're taking with you not just food for you and your family, but for the widows, the orphans, the strangers, those who don't have land, those who can't grow their own food, so that who can rejoice? everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. People look and say, the Old Testament, that's just for Jews. That's nonsense. How many times does the word Jew or Jewish appear in the first five books of the Bible? None, zero, not a one. God's the God of all people. God's commandments are for all people. Prove it. Genesis chapter 19. Why, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Because of their iniquity, their lawlessness. The law hadn't been given at Mount Sinai. It's always been. It's been from the beginning. 1 Corinthians 7.19 Circumcision is what? And uncircumcision nothing but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So God has always held people responsible for breaking his commandments whether they knew what they were or not. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. I keep saying 6 because there's a 6 up at the top of the page. And Daniel has to correct No, it's 7. Okay. And there's another place where it's 7, but it says 6. Of the, I, oh, well. Let's keep going. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24. If you're wondering why I keep looking over the computer so hard, the clock ran out of battery, so i got to read this little clock down here on the screen. Deuteronomy 24, verse 17. Deuteronomy 24, verse 17. You shall not pervert justice, do the stranger or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. You see what God's saying? I gave you more than you need so that you can bless the fatherless, the widows, the orphans, the strangers. 
Deuteronomy 26, just turn the page, verses 12 to 13. You might say, why does God need to tell us so many times? The answer is because we're thick-headed and stiff-necked. Deuteronomy 26, 12 to 13 says, When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, you're tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, there's the non-Jew, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house, and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. What if you're lying to the Lord? I didn't give it to the strangers, the widows, and orphans. I kept it in the barn, but God won't know that. How many of you believe for a minute that God won't know that? By us giving money to like Vision for Israel or something for that, like that, who also provides for those widows and orphans. Yep. Is that our way of doing it since we don't Correct. agriculture? That's our way to do it. When we give to Vision for Israel, it's specifically for aid to the poor. Except for the extra 5000 we sent this month, which was for the disaster relief. But we will also send the regular money to Vision for Israel for aid to the poor. When we send the money to the orphans in Kenya, they're Jewish believers for the most part. They're not all believers, but they're all Jewish people. And they're orphans. Their parents have been killed in the wars or have been taken in, in another way. They're being taught their school, they're being taught trades, they're being taught to raise food and yeah, all that stuff. Deuteronomy 27, 19. So yes, we are fulfilling God's intent here. Deuteronomy 27, 19. We could say, since we don't live in Israel, then we don't have to give to them. But that's looking at the letter, not the spirit. Deuteronomy 27, and then we'll close. Verse 19. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Which means they now acknowledge that they will suffer a curse from God if they break this commandment. And with that, our time has come to the end. We will pick up next week, Lord willing, in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 11.